I was I was wondering for a second if you had never seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> I did, but I'd never. He's, he's seen Meaning of Life and Life of Brian, but he hasn't worked his way up to Holy Grail yet. Yeah. <laughs> he's going backwards. I, yeah. I want to save something for old age. <laughs> I I understand. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I am your host, Sean Hartman, collector of vintage Budman stickers. My name is Jeremy Ruggles, and I am playing putt-putt golf right now. I have one of those headsets like Madonna wears when she sings and dances, and I'm in my backyard where I have made a putt-putt course. And I'm going to play whilst running this episode. Okay. Are you going to give us periodic updates on how your score is doing? Yes. All right. Cool. And I'm Peter Cook, differentiator between Michael Moore and Michael Morley. Oh, and what is the difference, pray tell? (laughs) I think one of them lives in New Zealand and one lives in the United States. Okay. <laughs> and one is the Michael Michael Morley's in New Zealand. Right. That's the difference. Would you say that one of them is objectively better than the other? Objectively. Yes. <laughs> All right, one of them is objectively better than the other. Mhm. Are either of yeah. them related in any way to the record we're doing today? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Has Michael Morley ever guested on a Denise Williams cut? I'm sure oh, I'm sure crap. they're working on something right now. Did I spill the beans too soon? Listen, I have watched every episode of Diva Stories by Denise Williams. I can assure you she does not mention Michael Moore or Michael Morley at any point. Okay. Okay. As of yet. As of yet. As of yet. Pen- pending collaborations with both of them. True. Oh, yeah. That'd be cool. Can I... I just want to drop a little, a little factoid right out at the gate here. Mm-hmm. Because it's part of why I picked Denise Williams. Denise Williams has been on records, three different records that we have covered on this podcast. Do you boys know? Three. Do you boys know any of them? Stevie Wonder in full circle. In square circle, yep. She was on that one. Oh, in square circle. Yeah. <laughs> no. Which are the other two? I should know, but I just don't off the top of my head. Probably uh, Roberta Flax, Feel Like Making yep. Love. She was on that, on the title cut. Oh, wait, was she on uh, the Minnie Ripperton record? And Minnie Ripperton, Perfect Angel. Okay. All three of those records she was singing backups on. Ooh, okay. So I figured it's time we, you know, it's like looking at the lens of her through these other songs the same way that I've used her Diva Story series to look at the lens of other artists through her eyes. Damn. We're really... We're going all out with this one. It's getting deep. Conceptual. <laughs> all right. We've been spinning a, a web in increased complexity over the last year, and now we're just... It's payoff time, further. boys. Yeah, like, exactly. Like George Lucas, we had it all planned from the beginning. Yep. <laughs> uh, so this is her debut album. This is Nisi, and this is... I'm going to just jump into the first track so you can hear it. All right, here we go. It's... Important. It's important to me.
you know, I'm a big fan of a very strong side A track one on a record, and this album does not disappoint. That song rips just right out the gate, funky as hell, instant 10 out of 10 record. <laughs> Even if it was all crap after that, instant 10 out of 10. Well, 10 out of 10 so far, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Three tracks in, and I'm already convinced that Yola Tango's album is the best album of the year. Yep. <laughs> Said Sean Hartman on Facebook. I like to make my decisions quickly, efficiently. Yeah. I never look back. I would argue that no Yola Tango album has ever been album of the year. Shut the fuck up, Jeremy. Also, we're talking about Denise Williams. What do you guys think about that song? Oh, that bass. <laughs> Mm. it's so fun i wonder who who could that bassist be he seems quite talented i wonder if he ever went anywhere with it i bet that bassist could play one note over and over and still have it be impressive while floating through the audience performing magic tricks <laughs> while, while levitating in front of the audience are we i think we've given it away who that bassist is but i don't know if we're going there too soon i don't want to mess up jeremy's yeah chronology. Oh, you guys are just demolishing my chronology but <laughs> Stepping all over your flow right here. That's uh, Verdine White on bass of oh. Earth, Wind, and Fire fame. Okay. And thought thought it was familiar. The backing band on this album is basically Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm, so we got some Al McKay on guitar. Yep. Is that what you're telling me? Maybe a little Fred White on drums and percussion. Truth. Mm, okay. I'm starting to understand now. Some Jerry Peters on piano. Okay. He was not a full-time Earth, Wind, Fire guy, I believe. But he played with Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, the Jacksons, Al Green, Diana Ross, Quincy All Jones, Lionel Richie. Yeah, pretty much every legendary soul artist. Well, not everyone, but a lot of them. People will possibly also remember from the Earth, Wind, and Fire episode that the name of their short-lived production company was Kalimba Productions, which has the little Kalimba Productions logo on the bottom left of the back of the record jacket. Correct. And this is an album put out on Kalimba Productions because Maurice White was backing this whole project pretty much. Yep. And he produced this album with Charles Stepney. Mm-hmm. Of the uh, godlike producer duo, Untouchable. This was 76? Correct. And yes. this was like, okay. I think either the last or one of the very last albums Charles Stepney did because he ended up passing away pretty shortly after this album was done, like within a few months. Yeah. Huge shame. He had so much left to give. Was he relatively young when he passed away? Let's see. He was... 45 years old. That's pretty young. Well, actually, he was a few days short of his 45th birthday. So, yeah, very, very young. And especially considering everything that he accomplished. Yeah, just a mountain of incredible work in Chicago with the Chess Record label and then with the uh, Columbia, Columba Productions, Earth, Wind, and Fire Association in the mid-70s. Good stuff. We're starting heavy here, boys. That's true. What did you want to talk about, Jeremy? Are you the one leading this yeah, episode? What, or Yeah. What, what did you let's, have planned? Let's go from death and back into life. to the, Full circle the already. The birth of, of Denise. 1951 from Gary, Indiana, which is hmm. like a really long stone throw from where Peter and I are. It's like True. a two-hour by vehicle. And you know who else is from Gary, Indiana, boys? Freddie Gibbs. Michael Jackson. Well, the Jackson family. But yes, right. including yeah. Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, all the Jacksons. Yeah. So. And, also, and also Freddie Gibbs. He's definitely from there. Mm, true. Much more contemporary. Well, he's probably not that much younger than the Jacksons, actually. I think he's in his 40s now. But Wow. I didn't know Freddie Gibbs was from Gary. Yep. He mentions it one or like 50 times throughout his music. Wow. So she was born there, began singing in church at age three. And she is really confusing because part of her like accounts make it sound like she didn't really do much with music until 
like she after she had gone to college. But then in other accounts, she talks about having local records out when she was a teenager. So there seem to be conflicting reports about when she was working on music. But essentially, she went to college in Baltimore and was planning on becoming a nurse and was not really planning on doing much with music. And I also found, somewhat ironically, she also wanted to be an anesthetist. Like an anesthetic person who gives anesthetics? Yeah, which is not, that's like the opposite of what I take from her singing and being a performer. (laughs) It's an interesting association there. (laughs) Yeah, which is why she kind of failed at it. She says she wasn't a very good student and left school. But after she left school, she began working at a telephone company and was on the side singing at a club called Casino Royale. Ooh, like James Bond? Kind of, but but also not kind of, because I'm sure it had nothing to do with that, unless it was named after it. Maybe it was named after James Bond. I don't know. I didn't do a lot of research into the Casino Royale. <laughs> That's okay. kind of a footnote, Peter. Sometimes you just leave those things alone. I like to go down the avenues I know you didn't explore. You like to expose me for a fraud. (laughs) I should stop doing that. That's brutal. That's brutal, bud. So, Jeremy, (laughs) did you happen to plan to talk about how this record was featured prominently in a scene on the Hulu original series Wu-Tang and American Saga? (laughs) I had no idea until about three seconds ago. (laughs) Well, yeah, obviously. You know, there's the scene later in the first season where Ashton Sanders, who is playing Bobby Diggs, a.k.a. the RZA, is crate digging to work on a beat for his recording debut. He goes in the store and he picks this out because he sampled one of the songs on this record. Oh, really? I didn't see that anywhere. I think it was something like he had made a beat sampling the song free and then the record label released it with a more commercial beat instead so i don't know if like his version sampling this was ever commercially available but they did like have a cool shot of him in the record store pulling this record out oh because the only sample i found was freddie gibbs and the song rap money he samples if you don't believe oh yeah i saw there was a bunch of samples from a few of these songs nothing like crazy notable like not a a lot of stuff that people would recognize there was uh lords of the underground sampled one of her songs and i think she like maybe even re-recorded some vocals on it because it's like sometimes listed as featuring her far out well let's jump back to the timeline she is singing part-time in a club and she has a cousin this was another confusing thing there's after doing research into this i'm curious if there's conflicting stories because narratives are trying to be shaped or if there's just bad information out there i don't know anyways her cousin john harris who lived in detroit he would come back to gary indiana because his grandma lived there and denise would talk to him and he'd be like yeah cv wonders my friend and she's like you're full of shit Everybody from Detroit says they know Stevie Wonder. And he ends up getting her backstage passes to go see Stevie Wonder, which she loved. And then she ended up getting him, or he ended up getting her an audition with Stevie Wonder a couple years later. Interesting. Yeah. And the weird thing I found, though, is I found an account... This is another thing I didn't know anything about. In 1973, Stevie Wonder was in a car crash that knocked him unconscious, and he was in the hospital for weeks. And John Harris was driving the vehicle that the crash happened in. And in the account of that that I was reading, it listed John Harris as Stevie Wonder's cousin. Hmm. So I... Well, Wonder is not his uh, real last name. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, but I'm left wondering, are they like distant relatives then somehow? But I couldn't find anything that said anything about that. Huh. I guess we'll just have to wonder. Oh, I see what you did there. 
Well done, Peter. <laughs> well done. Had to say something. The audition goes well because Denise Williams is a crazy good singer and has four octaves of range. Pretty similar to Minnie Ripperton. They have pretty similar as far as ranges and a little bit of style, style-wise similarities if you listen. Yeah, I was I was noticing that while playing the record, getting ready for this. I mean, if if you played these records for someone who was completely unfamiliar and you played uh, Minnie Ripperton and told them what it was and then played this record, I feel like most people would just assume it was another Minnie Ripperton record. Which is partly just due to the, you know, the same production team. You got Charles Stepney with his distinct uh, style on both records. I noticed that too, but I I didn't take note of Denise doing the whistle register as often as many. That's not the case, is it? Yeah, she didn't quite, she doesn't use the whistle register as much, but she does hit some pretty high notes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I imagine, imagine many had a whole kind of a trademark on that at the time. <laughs> So she gets taken in and moves to L.A., and she's part of Stevie Wonder's Wonder Love group as a backup singer. And she did that for like three, three and a half years, was touring with him. She's on Stevie's The Talking Book album, Fulfilling This First Finale, and Songs in the Key of Life. She's on all those albums with him. Ooh, you know what other record she's on in 1974? What one? Kenny Rankin's Silver Morning. <laughs> I saw that. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's on a couple of Kenny. She's on an insane amount of records from like yeah. the early 70s through the late 80s. It blew my mind how many albums she's actually on. Okay. She's on a Tubes record in 76? Man, what a, what a range. <laughs> yep. So she was with Stevie Wonder and the backing band. Actually, let's let's go to another song before we keep ripping into this history. Yeah, let's do that. Which one you want to play? Let's do the last song on the album. It's called If You Don't Believe. Oh yeah. It's when when a singer hits those high notes but isn't like belting it. I just love that when they like mm -hmm. float up into it and it gets like all like wavery and you're like, oh. And on top of that, man, that arrangement and the level of dynamic control that all the musicians had on there and all the interesting 
twists and turns that it kept taking, but still just flowing perfectly behind her vocals. Really, truly only the greatest band of all time could pull something off like that. Yep, yep. There's some vibraphone in there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And it's all just so subtle and tasteful. And also, I love how the intro is like basically just a really restrained horn section plus the vocals. You just don't hear stuff like that very often. Yeah, I think that's my yeah, favorite song on the album, honestly. Definitely a well-sequenced album. Mm-hmm. Like, not front-loaded. Right. You know what else I like most? More than you guys, What's even? What's that, Jeremy? Our Patreons. Oh, yes. We want to thank everyone who signed up for our Season 2 kickoff throughout the month of October to our Patreon. We have several more patron supporters now and thanks to everyone who donated we're going to be shipping things out very soon here it's now november so we that will be in the mail you'll be receiving your i'd buy that for a dollar swag very soon and so yeah thank you again really means a lot to us we're going to keep the lights on another year here boys true also (laughs) peter's playing it safe by saying we got a few more subscribers that's just because in real time we're recording this episode on october 18th so we don't actually know how many subscribers we got by the end of the month so i'm gonna go ahead and fix that form and just say we're so thankful that we broke 100 new patreon subscribers in the month of october y'all are awesome and yeah hey yeah dare to dream big sean (laughs) you know go big or go home You know, since you mentioned the date, Sean, October 18th, and I'm a nerd about dates, it was 23 years ago today that I started my first job. Dang. (laughs) Do you still have that job, Peter? Yep. I was a podcast host starting October (laughs) 18th, 1997. Been working for the man every day of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, I got patrons backing me now, so. Yep. It's all good. Freedom is within your grasp. If, so, if you keep it podcasting for 23 years like Peter, you too might make it one day. <laughs> All you got to do Dream is big. just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and start podcasting. Yeah. So, well, yeah, exciting kickoff to season two, and we'll keep bringing you fantastic information on records like this one by Denise Williams. You guys want to hear a, a diva story from Denise Williams? I've, I've been waiting so long to hear a genuine Denise Williams diva story. With, with bated breath. All right. So this one, we're going to jump to season two, episode six of Diva Stories. In case the audience doesn't know why I keep referencing diva stories, because you haven't listened to all 56 episodes before this, I have brought it up multiple times over different episodes. It's become a thing where whichever artist we're going to cover, I search out to see if there's a diva story on it. So, Yeah, and these are all Denise Williams. It's a YouTube channel that she has where she tells anecdotes about interactions she had with musicians, right? Yeah, and I love it because it's so fucking earnest. She, yeah. It's not like... She's not making 10 minute and one second videos and like tagging everything in the world and like trying to bend the algorithms. It's like her in her like dining room or something. And like one of the episodes starts with her being like, is the camera on? And- <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, when I first checked one out, I didn't know that they were going to have, I don't, I don't, I won't want to say this negatively that they don't have great like huge amounts of production value. They're very straightforward and it's just her and her personality, which is all you really need. Yeah. It's like somebody told like YouTube is like, here's a great way for people to get personal with their audience. And she like actually believed them and like is following through on the promise of YouTube. And that's what diva stories are. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, you don't expect uh, like tales from the tour bus animation or anything like that if you check these out but uh, they're definitely worth it yeah and and they've been great they've been great additions to the podcasts yeah i I mean i've definitely developed a great love for very poor quality youtube videos and interviews (laughs) related to musical nerd (laughs) facts over the course of this podcast episode i keep finding them man like i i watched a very poor quality youtube interview to get some information for the instant funk episode the other day too so 
They're out yeah. there. Cheap records and bad YouTube videos. The Ronnie Laws one was similar too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Jeremy, to, uh, yeah, what do you have for us with Denise and the Diva stories? Yeah, we're Denise Williams. You know, we're in her Stevie Wonder era, where she's in the Wonder Love Band. And season two, episode six, she tells this story of Stevie telling her how he's always wanted to drive a car. And Denise Williams takes Stevie Wonder to a parking lot and lets him drive her car, uh, to which he like immediately just floors the gas. And <laughs> I didn't understand the physics of it, but like she panicked and like stuck her foot over and like slammed on the brakes to uh, stop the vehicle and then ordered Stevie to get out of the car. And that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that sounds familiar. I think I watched that one actually. That's, that's great. That's beautiful. So that's, uh, you know, just a, a small sample of what you can get from diva stories. Insider information for you. Some, Direct information. What do they call that? Peter, you probably know. There's a smart word for that, right? Primary source. Primary source. While Denise is singing backups with Wonder Love, she gets noticed by a bunch of different people, including Maurice White. But she also gets noticed by Johnny Mathis, who she ends up singing with for many years, and they had a big hit together. Roberta Flack, as previously mentioned, noticed her while watching Stevie Wonder's band and had her on the Feel Like Making Love album and on a few other albums after that. Uh, but most importantly, Maurice, well, most importantly for our story, Maurice White noticed her and wanted her to do a solo album. Yeah, that's a big jump. I mean, that's amazing to just be, you know, a backup singer, like granted a very high profile backup singer and then have other superstars just be like, Hey, let's, let's make an actual full album starring you. Yeah. Oh, there's a, I'm going to drop another quick diva story anecdote. Season two, episode one, she talks about going to sing with Roberta Flax band and how with the wonder love band, she would just go ride in the tour bus. So after doing a Roberta Flack show, she goes to like ride the tour bus and Roberta's like, hey, come with me. And she's like, the lady's riding the limo. And then they all rode in the limo together because, I don't know, they're cool. So I guess Roberta Flack says the lady's riding the limos. When Roberta Flack tells you something, you just got to follow suit. Oh, yeah. You listen. If anyone tells you, hey, come ride in the limo, you just get in the limo, right? Well, I mean, I'm sure I can think of a few circumstances where if a person was to tell you to get into their limo, you might not want to. But... Beverage here, man. Beverage. <laughs> that's some Have a beverage here. That's some Philly wisdom right there. Here in the naive small town of Kalamazoo, we just hop in limos. <laughs> Out there in yeah, Philly. Yeah, it depends on which state you're in, you know, which how big the city is. Yeah. Yeah, if a garbage man tells you to get in his limo in Philly, you don't do it. It's a mob joke, boys. It's a mob joke. <laughs> oh, that mob humor. The mob's not here. They're over, they're over in Jersey. Everybody knows that. <laughs> oh, Lord. So far away. Well, so this was her debut album. I did. I guess I wasn't aware of that going into this. This was Denise Williams' very first record. Yes. She wow. Yeah, toured with Wonder Love for a few years, and then, yeah. This is... I mean, she just feels like a star already on this album. Oh, yeah. Like, listening to it. Without that context, I would have thought this was her third or fourth album. Yeah, no, this is the debut, and Maurice White, and as was previously mentioned, pretty much all of Earth, Wind, and Fire was the backing band. She had all-star backing, and she just always... It seems like she's one of those people, you know, that is just highly charismatic and is like automatically magnetic. Well, and it looks like she wrote all the songs too. Is that correct? I don't think that's right. Look, I just pulled up the track listing and she has credits on every single song. I mean, there's other people helping her write as well, but her name's at the very front of all the credits. So she's doing a lot here. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's true. And sometimes she's the only credit. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I just, yeah, this, this is uh, for a debut for someone who had been, you know, kind of, uh, you know, behind the scenes for so long. It's like, she's coming out strong. She is ready to show what she's got. Wow. I totally missed that from reading interviews and stuff with her. I got the impression she came around to writing her own songs like a little later after a few albums, but I guess I was mistaken. Nope. She's she's hitting the gar- hitting the ground running with this one for sure. I mean, I think, yeah, it's just, I think that's important to note because someone could easily say, oh, she had earth, wind and fire backing her. And, you know, I'm sure that some of the level of production is is due to them, but it seems like she's doing a lot here herself. Yeah, I mean, it, she's a big reason for the success of this record. It likely would have been an awesome record even without Earth, Wind, and Fire, but they just you know pushed it right on over the top for her. Yeah, no, I was I, I wasn't familiar with this record going in, and I honestly liked it. A, it was almost on par with the uh, the Mini Ripperton Perfect Angel that we did last season, as far as feeling like I had found another treasure that uh, that I had just totally overlooked. Oh, definitely. And also, I just I love this album cover. It's so iconic, it's so cool. Describe it, Sean. The uh, you know, so it's, you know, her striking a pose on the front cover and she's wearing this black and white yellow floral pattern dress while standing in front of a background that has the same pattern, so she's kind of like weirdly blending into it. Yeah. And then it's just got this cool yellow border with her name at the top. It's just, it, it just works. It's so well done. Jumps out at you. This was actually a record I picked up pretty early on in soul record collecting. I bought a big wholesale lot of records out of Detroit. And I remember this being one of the ones that jumped out at me right away that I listened to and played on one of my early uh, wider radio shows in Kalamazoo at the college station. Yeah, this record's been with me for a while, and I love it. Well, I'm glad you finally decided to share by way of Jeremy yep. for me. <laughs> I got a lot of records I love, guys. <laughs> yeah, I understand. It's an elegant cover. That's that's how I would describe the cover. Totally. Iconic and elegant. I want to play her kind of the only hit, I guess, from this album was the song Free. Yeah, it, it does look like this was a gold record. Yeah, the record sold fairly well it wasn't her best selling of all time which i'll get to later but free hit number two on the billboard soul charts and was actually the number one single in the uk so it was a fairly big song for being on a debut album so yeah it's a good one should we listen to that song let's listen to that song let's listen to that song peter you want to listen to that song yeah, uh, it's uh, how much are we going to charge our listeners to listen to this song? Ooh, the song's free, but you know if they want to follow us on Patreon, <laughs> that oh, was yeah. a cheap plug. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh yeah, that one. As soon as I heard that one, it was familiar, and I wasn't sure if it was because I recognized it from the plethora of tracks that it's been sampled on, or if I just knew the original. Now that I know it's that it's a hit, maybe I've heard it somewhere before because. I'm not necessarily familiar familiar looking at who sampled.com. I'm not necessarily familiar with a lot of these tracks that it's been sampled on. I, I know Lords of the Underground, but I'm not sure offhand if I know the track Faith. It's yeah, actually, Sean, like you said at the top of the episode, uh, it says featuring Denise Williams. So I don't know if it's a sample or an interpolation with her featuring coming back and re-singing parts or something. Right. Yeah, and I wasn't familiar with that song before this either, but it's a good song. I listened to it. Solid. I see that the uh, family-friendly artist Devin the Dude sampled that as well. <laughs> yeah, there's what like 50 plus registered samples on who sampled that. It's right around that. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a lot. For some reason, that sounds that song sounds like it's on a Ghostface song, like a sample, but I can't place which one. And it might just be something that sounds similar, but it it, it definitely has that feel of like instant recognize, you know, recognizability. That beginning is just like the perfect sample area, that instrumental section when the, the drum and bass kick in. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This song's also been covered like 20 plus times. I mean, that's just like people on albums covering it and stuff. Who knows how many times people have covered it live. But uh, it's also seen as a feminist anthem in its time, which kind of surprised me. But I guess digging into the lyrics, it made sense. It's... You know, it celebrates love and desire, but also has the, I guess, feminist anthem of not wanting to be tied down by love, just wanting to experience it and then go be free. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I also have a diva story for this one. All right. Hit me with it. I love this episode. I just get to dip dip into diva stories nonstop. All right, this one, we're going season two, episode two, and she tells a story of meeting James Brown in the airport. Whoa. And this would have been shortly after this album was released, and she spots James Brown. She said she thought it was in the Atlanta airport and approaches him and is like, I'm such a big fan, oh my gosh, and just, you know, total fan, like, freaking out kind of thing. And... She's like, you've been such an inspiration to me, blah, blah, blah. And was like, my name's Denise Williams. And he was like, are you the girl that sings free? And she was like, yeah. And seemed shocked that he had even heard it. And he shouts and starts flagging his wife over and like has his wife come over. (laughs) And he's like, this is the girl that sings that song you love free. And like the wife's freaking out about meeting her. And it just sounded adorable. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. I love that. I I thought that it was going to end that James Brown was like, hey, everyone, Denise Williams is over here. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's like James Brown isn't even there. <laughs> That's good, though. It'd be too epic. Too <laughs> epic to be true. That's another reason that these are these diva stories are so endearing is because they're never fabricated to the point that it sounds like she's making stuff up like they definitely sound like they could happen yeah some of them are even like borderline mundane and i'm left wondering like wait why do you tell that story but uh, (laughs) when she was a kid she rode a bike and that was it that's my line oh that's you that was you i see you've told so many i mix up you and denise williams they're one in the same it's understandable we both have angelic voices so yeah very similar <laughs> jeremy what's your uh what's your octave range <laughs> well see hers is four octave and mine's like 0.4 i'm pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> i got a, i got a few notes for sure <laughs> those, yeah if you just ignore those pesky decimal points they're pretty much the same yeah what do you got next? Well, I I didn't want to go too far into her future because I feel like there's potential to potentially hit another Denise episode sometime down the line. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. But I will say she kept recording through the 70s and 80s, and around the beginning of the 90s, she shifted into more gospel music and Christian music and... 
kept recording up in through the 2000s. I think she still occasionally performs today. Huh. Well, if people are interested in starting to check out songs from her other albums, I included two songs of hers from other albums on the Spotify playlist that we'll be putting out. Did you include her her giant mega hit? Uh, which one's the giant mega hit? It's the biggest hit of her career by far was Let's Hear It For The Boy. Oh, uh, okay. No, I did not include that song. That is a good song, though. It was super huge because it was on the Footloose soundtrack and was uh, prominently featured in the film. Okay. No, I included the song Baby, Baby, My Love's All For You from the Songbird album, which followed this one in 1977. And then I ended the playlist with the song I Found Love from the album When Love Comes Calling, which came out in 79, right after the Johnny Mathis collaboration in 1978. What else is on that playlist? Oh, I, I'm so flattered that you would ask. I got a few suggestions from you guys. Uh, some Grace Jones on there. Good one. Cheryl Lynn is on there. We got another Dells track. Another one, you know, produced by the squad, the Chicago Boys, Charles Stepney and Company, off their album. We got to get our thing together. And then some other, I try to highlight a lot of female singers. The Pointer Sisters are on there with one of my favorite songs of theirs, How Long, Bet You Got a Chick on the Side. Melba Moore is on there, LTD, Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway, Minnie Ripperton, like we said. Gwen McRae is on there. You guys were listening to Gwen McRae? Negative. Well, I think I'm, th- I'm thinking of Carmen McRae. Yeah, there's a few different McRae's out there. Uh, Gwen is really, really good and was also a big breakbeat stuff, uh, uh, songs for early hip-hop crews. There was a few of her songs that people were seeking out and using in the early hip-hop block parties for the breakbeats. The staple singers around there, Aretha Franklin, The Emotions, another Earth, Wind & Fire associated group. The funk group, Sun. I put a Donna Summer song on there. Another I'd Buy That For A Dollar alum. And then ended it with some kind of smooth jazz soul crossover with a collaboration between the singers Phyllis Hyman and Norman Connors, the jazz musician. Quite a list to dig into. Good stuff. We'll post the link to that on our social media the day after this episode airs, and we'll have the whole thing live if you want to search I'd Buy That Podcast on Spotify. You can find that and other playlists to accompany each new episode that we do in season two. That's how we're doing things. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Extra work for Sean. That's uh, pretty much all I got, unless you guys want another diva story. Yeah, hit us with a diva story, and let's go out on a go out on a song. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's do one more. I this might be my favorite diva story, but because it has crossover interests for me, because this is about when she met Ron Artest. Do you guys know who that is? Meta World Peace. Meta World Peace. Do you want to tell the audience who that is in case they don't know? <laughs> I think you're better suited for that than I. I mean, I I mainly know J- Jeremy is the basketball fanatic on this podcast. I mainly remember Ron Artest, aka Meta World Peace, from the Malice at the Palace brawl between Benjamin Wallace and Ron Artest, the Pistons, and the. What team was he on then, Ron Artest? He was on the Pacers, and that's actually part of the story she tells. Okay, the the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, season three, episode two, she talks about watching a basketball game with her son, which the basketball game was the infamous Malice at the Palace, which is probably one of the darkest moments in sports history, actually. Mm-hmm, absolutely yeah i mean it, it's it's it was a pretty ugly scene yeah so ben wallace the detroit pistons have basically won the game already ben wallace goes up for a slam and ron artest like whacks his arm really hard which is you know in a competitive game people might shrug it off but in a game that's already over that's just like uh i don't it's not it's beyond rude unnecessary roughness yeah it's totally unnecessary so Ben Wallace shoves Ron Artest, and Ron Artest is very well known for having a very hot temper and acting eccentrically. He'd like smashed a camera 
in a game before and like threatened to beat people up and stuff. So he shoves around our test and that sparks like both the teams kind of shoving and pushing around. And Ron Artest seems to want to do the right thing in this situation. He walks away and lays down on the scorer's table, and you can see him like <laughs> trying to calm himself down. And while he's <laughs> laying on the scorer's table, a Detroit Pistons fan chucks a beer from the stands down, and it hits Ron Artest, who is, he's like standing and in the stands, like, six rows up in about like half of a second it's like inhuman the speed with which he springs up and is in the stands and starts wailing on someone in the crowd who it turns out isn't even the person who threw the beer but this guy's friends are trying to defend him and they're hitting ron Artest, and then members of the pacers are running in the crowd and throwing punches trying to defend their buddy and it's just it's as far as i know the only time like athletes and the crowd have been in like a fight together. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty unprecedented, nor has it happened since, at least to my knowledge. Yeah. So who won the fight? <laughs> it's hard to say. There were a bunch of suspensions and huge fines. I don't believe there are any like criminal prosecutions, but yeah, it was crazy and denise williams saw this all go down and a couple years after this famous incident she runs into ron artest at the bet music awards in like the back room area and she approaches him and was like you're ron artest like you you were in the malice at the palace and stuff and he's like shrinking and like uh yeah and like clearly is super uncomfortable and like looking around the room and denise williams is like i'm so glad you stuck up for yourself and waxed his tushy and like <laughs> is just fully in support of what meta world peace did there and he's like no no that was wrong I i'm sorry that was wrong <laughs> and he's just like squirming and she's apparently just cracking up and like telling him how awesome he was for doing it <laughs> did he know who she was does is that indicated in the diva story like i have, did he have no idea? idea she didn't really address whether or not <laughs> yeah he knew who she was yeah i was just curious that that's pretty funny though <laughs> i i'm gonna have to watch that one i want to hear that I want to hear her tell that one. Yeah, that is that is. Uh, I'm kind of slightly. I, I I'm slightly obsessed with the malice at the palace. So, yeah, it's I'd a love to hear a fascinating incident. Yeah, for sure. Well, now that we've uh, we've deviated into sports a little bit here, but it's an interesting route we haven't taken too much before. Yeah, let's let's and round it out before this turns into uh, you know like a ringer podcast sports talk. Yeah. <laughs> all right what track you want to go out on then let's go out on that's what friends are for because because you boys are my boys oh just a couple of friends oh. making a podcast together that's cute this is another one that's uh stuck out to me when i was checking this out um which uh which side is this one on side one track two yeah, that's right. It's right right at the beginning, pretty close to the beginning. I'm almost surprised this wasn't a hit when, when I listened to this album. Yeah, this is a radio-friendly hit. Yeah, sounds like a hit you never heard. Well, should we maybe uh, thank people for listening to another fine episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar and inform them that I've been their host, Sean Hartman. And I have been their host, Jeremy Ruggles. And I, the voice you're hearing, have been your host, Peter Cook. Good night. Or good morning. <laughs>